Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Have you ever had one of those days when you try to do something and it just doesn't work? So you try to fix it, but that just screws something else up. So you work at correcting that, but that just seems to make things even worse. And everything you do just keeps making things worse and worse. This is usually best illustrated by the Tim the Toolman or the Homer Simpson type deciding they can fix something cheaper than calling a professional, but by the time they're done saving money doing it themselves, they've destroyed half the house and driven the repair cost up multiple times more than it would have been originally. Eventually, most of us will just stop, realize that no matter what we're trying to do, no matter the purity of our intentions, we're just screwing things up because we have no idea what we're doing. But not science. Oh, no, sir. Science knows way better than you or I, and they're not going to get all bogged down with your data and statistics and analysis, examples, reality. Nope. They're helping. They're making everything so much better. It only looks like it's getting worse. Plus, you're probably something phobic. And why do you hate black people? Those are usually the best ways to derail a legitimate argument. On today's episode, first we're going to prove that electric vehicles are fine. They're just fine. Everything is fine. Then we're going to be totally responsible when we unmask this time around. No more just throwing gobs of them into the ocean like I did last time. And after the bumper, uh, uh, you know the thing. So go get all your extension cords, even the ones that you taped up after you chopped it in half with the tool you were using, and then hurry on over to Amazon to get a case of masks before they're all gone, because uh, for better or worse, here we go. Okay, look, I get it. I know that I keep talking about electric vehicles, but, but here's the thing. We're being told that vehicle manufacturers need to be selling like 50% EVs by 2030. We're told that EVs are the way to go, that they're just great. In fact, we're being told that all electric everything is the only way to save the planet, likely because it'll cause the deaths of billions of people, which is what they want, and it'll also destroy anything that we used to consider first world, which is also what they want, but they don't say that part out loud. We're told that EVs are fast and quiet and clean and just stop worrying about the range problem. I mean, there'll be chargers all over the place every once in a while, and some of them will even work. And who really needs to have a car charged in under a couple hours anyway? I mean, by the time you go to the bathroom and you get a bite to eat, you'll only have like an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes left to wait if you're the first in the charging line currently currently charging. Plus the vehicle price that keeps going up keeps getting discounted as they keep going up and the government will give you a huge tax break on an electric car or truck but not on most of them as they don't qualify. So except for the massive price, I mean it'll be practically free. But for some reason, despite all those positives, people still just don't seem to be buying into them. They 
They know the problem, and it's not any of those things I already mentioned. All of those aren't problems, even though you think they are. They really aren't, and you and I both know that. No, the problem is range anxiety. And people like you seem to think that you should be able to go farther on a single charge, but that's because you're kind of spoiled and selfish, somehow. Well, despite it being nothing but a bunch of whining, car manufacturers and engineers are problem solvers, and they're developing solutions to your complaints, I mean, as we speak. But we'll get to that at the end. First, let's back up and take stock of where we are right now, shall we? As we've been doing lately, we'll sample a number of articles, fairly rapid fire, to paint ourselves a nice little picture, a little, little happy EV. Found on InsideEVs.com headline, EV sales fail to keep up with dealer inventory levels. The byline reads, quote, analysts say that there's a gap between the enthusiasm of EV consumers and actual purchases. <laughs> well, maybe analysts need to shut their mouths and mind their business. That's, that's what I think. So this article from July 6th of this year states that dealers in the U.S. had an average weekly inventory of 90,000 EVs in the second quarter, which is only a 342% increase over the same period last year, 2022. The average turnover rate of those EVs on the lot is about three months. I looked it up quickly, found an article from March of 2022 that said that dealers don't want a car to sit on their lot any more than 71 days. So EVs are apparently sitting there like 33% longer than desired. Now, part of this stagnant surplus can be attributed to more manufacturers pumping out their rolling bonfires faster than they had in the past and more manufacturers making them overall. But the reality is that the demand is not keeping up with the supply. In other words, despite a flurry of reservations, when the melting rubber hits the road, people don't want them. Now, surveying the populace, it was found that people felt they were too expensive as compared to real cars, and that they were concerned with the fact that there ain't nowhere to charge them up as compared to putting gas in a car. Moving to an article from July 11th found on AmericanExperiment.org, headline, Unsold Electric Vehicles Piling Up on Dealer Lots. Well, this article utilizes the same automotive data source as the previous article, but it gives some additional details. They believe that the stockpile is growing because of increased consumer demand. And the increasing number of states that are requiring the same California-type regulations to move toward zero-emission vehicles. Which, let's be honest, at this point, nobody anywhere ever should follow anything that California does. Just, just ever. Just never ever. Unfortunately, there are 20 states that have adopted some version of zero-emission vehicle requirements or incentives to buy them. If you're curious, those states are California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, Delaware, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Maine. Now, they say that consumer demand is one of the drivers for increased inventory. I'm not sure they understand how supply and demand works. I mean, yeah, sure, vehicle manufacturers don't want to be behind the demand curve by too much. You know, otherwise people go elsewhere. But I find it hard to believe that they want to be 90 plus days in front of the curve as that's just money sitting on the lot. I mean, unless manufacturers are just making too many of the wrong cars. 
And who knows when these things will light up and, you know, just burst into flame and take out the entire dealership. It'd be much better if it burned down in front of someone's home because you don't want to park it in the garage, not these tinder boxes, and then just melt down to whatever toxic sludge it's going to melt into all by itself away from other cars. This article does go on to say that consumers are more apt to purchase a hybrid vehicle, which gives you the best of both worlds, although... To be honest, I personally still have no interest in a hybrid either, but that's at least understandable as you can raise your mileage, but you won't be completely stranded when that one charging station in that shady part of town that you coast into on your last few electrons doesn't work. Now, I do appreciate the final sentence in this article, quote, instead of forcing unwanted EVs onto consumers, state and federal regulators should let consumers make their own decisions about what kind of car they drive. The greed. I mean, all joking aside, when electric cars are viable, people will flock to them. They're quieter, faster, they have instant torque. Now, personally, I like the feel and the sound of an internal combustion engine, but when, and I do believe that it's when, not if, when EVs are comparable to real cars, people will buy them like crazy. Moving to a more specific article from July 12th, found on Insider via news.yahoo.com, headline, Ford's electric Mustang Mach-E is piling up on dealer lots as the automaker confronts an EV inventory problem. Well, I think most of us have heard the news that came out, what, a month or two back, that Ford is basically hemorrhaging money in their EV department with the latest loss figure at, I believe it was $4.5 billion. I mean... I don't even know how that's possible, whatever. Well, despite those losses, despite the fact that Ford is losing money and despite the fact that Ford is selling fewer Mustang Mach-Es, which aren't Mustangs at all, and fewer F-150 Lightnings than they did last year, which should tell you something right there, they're still bullish about the EV market, apparently. And why not? I mean, they've got government mandates propping them up, as well as government bailouts, a.k.a. You're on my tax dollars. It's just waiting in the wings for them. Apparently in 2022, Ford dealers sold over 86% of the Mach-E inventory inside 30 days in the second quarter. The second quarter of 2023, that turn rate fell to just under 28%, a drop of nearly 60%. And that coincides with the drop of 21% in Mach-E sales in the second quarter year over year. The Lightning saw the same kind of turn rate cratering going from 70% to just under 40% from 2022 to 23. Ford projects right now that their EV segment won't see a profit for three years, and they're essentially losing about $58,000 per EV sold, which, I mean, to me, that sounds terrifying. But, and here's a fun little fact, in order to be an EV certified Ford dealer, the dealership has to cough up a minimum of a half a million dollars, and it could be over a million dollars in order to not sell these flaming bags of poo. Now, you can read more if you'd like. Links to uh, all these articles, of course, as always, are in the notes. Moving on, let's analyze this issue from a slightly different perspective, shall we? You know how we said that one of the main reasons people aren't just clamoring for one of these rolling conflagrations is because people just don't seem to want to take out an unbelievably massive loan for a battery-powered toy? I mean, if they cared, if you cared about the planet, then money should be no object. But apparently it is. 
But that's not the fault of the government regulations or the, the part suppliers or the mining companies or the car manufacturers. <laughs> oh, no, 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 sir. Found on jalopnik.com from August 1st, headline, Electric Cars Aren't Affordable Because America's Workforce is Underpaid. And there it is. The fault lies, or, or lays, lies or lays, whatever, squarely on the shoulders of your capitalist pig dog employer. Apparently these greedy fat cats, you know, with their boot on your neck, or I guess their paw on your neck, I'm not sure, don't care about you, and they don't care about saving us from global boiling. Although I wonder how much global warming 2,000 pounds of raging battery inferno adds to the mix. It doesn't matter, really. It's not important. So Jalopnik basically runs cover for the cost of EVs, cherry-picking prices, and saying they're really not much more expensive than the gas-powered counterpart. The average EV, for example, per their article, is about $55,000, and the average new car is about $50,000. So, see? Now, Per an Inside EV article listing out the 2023 prices for electric vehicles, the base prices for each model after the tax credit, sure, we see a large number of EVs that are $55,000 or less, but here's the thing. I copied all of their data, pasted it into Excel, like a nerd. Yes, I, I know, I fully admit that. And out of the 205 cars listed, I get an average of $77,500 per car, of which... 112 of those 205 cars are under the average, but if the average real car is $50,000, we can go with that number, well, you've got 50 options for electric vehicles now. But those 50 options are actually only 13 manufacturers and only 16 models total. That seems like it would be plenty of choices, but remember... These are the low range, both in miles and in trim quality. In other words, you can get a massive amount more car for the same price if you don't go with an EV. To put this in some sort of perspective, I just bought a new car, for instance. Now, it's a lower mid-range model that overall has the same quality, a good amount of better technology and more features than the same car I bought top of the line eight years ago. And my out-the-door price was just at $30,000. Now, for the same price, I could buy one of two models of Chevy Bolt or a Nissan Leaf S. I don't want either of those, and neither do you. As for trucks, it's really hard to find an average price of a truck. But according to one site, in 2021, the average price of a generic truck was over $41,000. Let's add in some inflation. Let's say for 2023, we're at what? $45,000 for an internal combustion engine truck? Well, since the Tesla Cybertruck isn't in the mix yet, and neither is the electric Chevy Silverado, there are realistically only three electric truck options right now. The Rivian R1T, the GMC Hummer Pickup, and the Ford F-150 Lightning. The average of all the models of those trucks is just under $87,000. If you want to look at those in the $45,000 range or below, you'd be looking at the... And that's all. Yeah, <laughs> there are literally none. All right. The base of the base Ford F-150 Lightning is just over $54,000, and that's after a $7,500 tax incentive. There's one more model of Lightning under $60,000. Then you have to jump over $70,000 to get to the next one on the list, the base Rivian R1T. I think you and I would much rather get a very nicely appointed 
pretty much anything if we're going to spend $70,000 on a truck. But remember, the problem isn't the price. It's your income. The problem is your employer, right? So in order to prove this point, Jalopnik goes all the way back to Henry Ford and the Model T. The myth, of course, was that Ford raised the wages of his workers so they could afford to buy his Model T, and increased wages were good for them, car buyers were good for him. Now, that's not entirely true. The ability to buy buy the car was more of a, a byproduct than anything else. Ford needed his workers to stay working on the line, which was a very manual and, in many cases, very difficult work, so he paid them very well. So if you figure the price of a Model T at the time to be about $700, this is the early 1920s, that would be just over $12,000 today if you figure using inflation. So cars have clearly outpaced inflation by about three to four times. But of course, look how much more you get today in a car. Now, in the mid-19-teens, Ford raised wages to about double what was seen in any other factory, to about $5 per day. If you figure five days per week, 52 weeks, that would be about $1,300 per year. So a new Model T would cost you about 50% of your annual income. The average personal income today is about 64000 per year in the United States, so a car at about 32000 would be the equivalent to the Model T of the 1920s. And the average gas or diesel truck price today is just over that. But the average electric truck price is more than a year's worth of gross income. So is the problem, as Jalopnik states, your income? Well... Looking at all the numbers, all the averages, no. The problem with electric vehicles is they simply cost way too much. Most people aren't interested in paying that much when they can get a much better real vehicle for the same price or potentially much less. And remember, that's after tax incentives. And all the manufacturers are losing money on the vehicles, which means the actual cost of the electric vehicle is much, much higher. It just hasn't been passed on to the consumer yet. So that's the cost problem with electric vehicles, but nothing we can do about that. You just need to cut back elsewhere, get a second or maybe a third job. But the other big problem is the so-called range anxiety, which I'd argue is the wrong term. I don't know that anyone has a problem with the range of most of the EVs out there right now. I mean, 250 miles is a little low. 300 miles, that's at least in the realm of reasonable. The problem is the charge time. So it's more of a range versus charge time anxiety or maybe just charging anxiety. If I could drive 250 miles and recharge that back to that range in five minutes, well... It would be slightly more inconvenient than my current car with a much better fuel range, but it wouldn't be bad. The problem is the lack of chargers and the lack of working chargers and the relatively small amount of range per amount of charge time. Found on the sun.com headline, electric shock. I'm a car expert and I'm going back to diesel after an EV. I'd rather drive on low fuel than low battery. Me too, Ms. Car Expert, me too. TikToker Abigail, a car expert of some stripe apparently, spent an entire week driving her Hyundai Ioniq 5 and realized that her anxiety level was greatly elevated when she had low battery charge as compared to low fuel in her regular vehicle. Yeah, I mean, that's a big problem for the EV market. I mean, this, I'd argue, is why they're seeing vehicles piling up on the lots. Those that were gung-ho about buying them have done so already. Most of them, at least, have done so. Out of the remaining fossil fuel suckers, only a small percentage are excited about getting their first EV. Out of those that purchase them as a novelty or as a daily driver or to play with or 
to save the planet, a large percentage, not the majority, but a large percentage, have already sold them, oftentimes at a loss, and have decided that they don't ever want to purchase another one. A variety of reasons for this, but range is one of the big ones. In one case, an individual that has clearly drunk the electrified Kool-Aid took his Rivian R1T hauling a 20-foot Airstream trailer and found that he could go about 175 miles between charges, which he was very happy with. And to make the 2,500-mile trip more enjoyable for himself, he decided to only drive about 300 to 350 miles per day. Now, for some of you, that would be more than fine. For me, that sounds absolutely rage-inducing. 300 miles per day? I mean, I'll drive 300 miles in a day to get a really good burger and some fried cheese curds. I mean, come on! But even worse than the electric cars, which, although not preferred over real cars, are at least accepted, the idea of an electric truck is rapidly dying. The manufacturers can't deliver what they promise for the price point they promise, and the consumer can't use the truck as a truck, at least not for very long. I mean, sure, the instant torque makes them just hauling beasts, but not for long. And then the regular truck starts to just lap them over and over again as they sit on the charger. Although they tout impressive ranges with the massive batteries that drive the weight of these trucks upward of 9,000 pounds for the Hummer, the calculated range is in a perfect driving scenario. Anything different from that means your range will plummet. In fact, last winter... We saw the batteries trying to keep themselves warm and driving ranges suffer, as well as a massive amount of charge time being used to simply heat the battery to the optimum or at least acceptable temperature in order to fast charge. But cold isn't the only problem. Let me introduce you to summer. Found on Forbes.com headline, Drivers in the Southwest are learning electric cars don't like it hot. According to this article, now EV owners are finding that they'll lose about 17% of their effective range at 95 degrees outside temperature. That's Fahrenheit. The largest drain is the climate control system, as most people have grown accustomed to, uh, you know, popping on the AC in the car on a hot or a warm or a slightly warmer than cool type of day. We're not animals. I mean, God, well, if he existed, which as we know from the climate alarmist, he clearly doesn't. But if if God existed, he surely didn't or, or wouldn't intend for us to drive around in hot cars. I mean, what kind of God would allow that? And of course, as it gets hotter outside, the climate control system works harder inside, meaning more range is scalped off the battery. In fact, add just five more degrees to that 95 and you'll lose an additional 14% of your capacity, meaning you're now over 30% of your battery's range being hijacked just to keep you cool. And just as the batteries had to work to get up to an optimum charging temperature in the winter, it also has to run the battery cooling system to keep the battery at or cool it down to that acceptable charging temperature in the summer. But Forbes has some advice for, you know, the general EV owner, and shockingly, it's not, hey, ditch the EV and buy a car that works. No, they have other advice. They state, quote, Of course, conventionally powered cars also consume more fuel than usual when operating in extreme temperatures, but these losses are more profound with EVs, which are at the mercy of what are often inoperative public charging stations. While this will vary from one model to another, and according to a variety of external factors, it underscores the fact that EV owners need to anticipate attaining fewer miles on a charge during extreme temperatures and adjust both their driving styles and expectations accordingly. It's also wise to keep a watchful eye on an EV's state of charge indicator 
and be aware of where public charging stations are located in case one is needed. And while the EV owner is doing that, I'll be blasting the AC, cranking the stereo to drown out the noise of that fan blasting on high, and not changing my driving style. And when I need to recharge my car, I'll stop at one of the infinity gas pumps around the nation, and after a pee and a snack purchase, I'll be back on the road with a full charge of fuel in about 10 minutes. But according to what I found on MercuryNews.com, headline, a heat wave will cook your electric car battery if you let it. It turns out that this heat may be worse for your high-tech, high-society, high-priced EV than you think. They state that although the vehicle will function as intended, quote, on a chemical level, though, extreme heat is akin to heart disease for EV batteries or a mellow and slow-moving form of cancer. Now, I don't know about you, but mellow or not, cancer doesn't sound good to me. They go on to say, quote, when temperatures climb, the ions in a car battery speed up. Once that happens, they often have trouble attaching to the anode or cathode. The pressure and speed can also create small cracks, which slow chemical reactions and make for less usable battery life. On extremely hot days, the ions in an EV battery whiz around even when the car isn't driving or plugged in, and that can curtail range irreversibly. The worst case, really, is a car that sits in an unconditioned garage in Phoenix all summer without being plugged in. That will cook the battery really quickly. If the car's plugged in, it can use charging power to keep its battery cool. And, of course, once you lose charge capacity, uh, it ain't coming back. The only thing you can do is replace the bad cells in your battery or replace the battery entirely. And that's not like swapping out a couple double A's. This is a big, expensive process. And of course, uh, those cells or that battery, it needs to be recycled too, except that almost nobody is recycling these things. They're being stored and stockpiled in warehouses with a massive fire suppression system because, well, you know why, until the few recyclers can get to them. I mean, this, this is a huge mountain of a problem that's only growing larger and larger by the year. Unfortunately, 56% of the electric vehicles currently reside in California, Florida, Texas, Arizona, and Georgia. Those are not your nice, moderately temperatured states. But don't worry, Mercury News has got you, fam. They found Skylar Williams, an entrepreneur in Austin, Texas, who did his research before buying his new Rivian. And he has some tips for us. One, in the hot summer, park in the shade. No matter if you're going in a store for 10 minutes or you're parking for hours, just drive around forever and find that nice shady spot. Number two, also only charge at the fast stations when you absolutely have to. Well, that sounds pretty convenient. I mean, isn't that what you... I guess we can't do that now. Three, he always leaves his truck plugged in when in the garage, just suckling at the teat of the electric company to keep those battery coolers churning away. Four... Try not to charge the battery past 80%. I mean, it really, if you're at, you know, 300 miles of range is a maximum for your vehicle, who really needs those extra 60 miles? 240 is way more than enough for anyone. And five, if he's away from his truck for a while on a hot day, well, he just uses the app to roll the windows down. Then his AC doesn't have to work quite as hard when he gets in to use those sweet miles of range. Quote, after almost a year, his car hasn't lost any range, which bodes well for resale value. <laughs> yeah, no way I'd buy a used EV. Sorry, sorry. Okay, but look, enough of the bad news. Let's finish this thing off with some good news. The EV engineers at Ford, 
so-called, are just solving problems left and right for you because they love you or they love for you to spend your money so they don't lose their jobs. Either way, it's the same thing. Ford just recently has filed a patent for, now get ready for it, a portable charging trailer. So you can tow a massively heavy trailer full of batteries uh, and just keep that with you when you need it. Found on topspeed.com headline, Ford's portable charging trailer could be a true game changer. Well, the article says that uh, Consumer Reports did a heavy-duty test of the Rivian and the F-150 Lightning to see what they could actually deliver in terms of range when stressed, right? A heavy-duty load. Well, after running a 71-mile course towing 10,000 pounds, the range of the Rivian dropped to 84 total miles. Total range of 84 miles. The Lightning did much, much better at 91 miles of total range. That's useless. When using a truck as a truck, that's useless. So Ford's solution, a battery trailer. Now, the trailer would have drive wheels as well, so it's not like the truck would have to tow the entire weight, although if it uses its own drive power, it'll also use its own battery power. But when you get where you're going, you could then plug up your truck or tools or camper or whatever with whatever battery power you have left. And I guess if you use all the battery power in the trailer, then you would have to tow it because it wouldn't have any power to drive its own wheels. Oh, and here's the thing. Although they don't say it, the implication is that if you're towing this, you're not towing that heavy load. So this is just a portable power supply because everyone loves to just tow something around that will lower your effective range so you can stop sooner and charge up with the thing you're towing so that you can get more range. No? That's, is that one not doing it for you? Don't worry. Ford has one more answer for you. This one you're going to love. Found on the cooldown via news.yahoo.com headline, Ford has a new high-tech solution for EV range limitations, and it could solve one of the biggest issues with electric cars. Well, we all like high-tech, right? And solutions? Absolutely. Here we go. Ford engineers, eh, again so-called, have filed a patent. Wait for it for a backup battery pack. Huh? Yeah, you know those like portable charger things for your cell phone? Eh, same concept, except much larger and heavier and strapped to the roof of your car, apparently. Now, don't think of all of that weight sitting, you know, above your head on a roof that wasn't designed to hold that weight. Don't think of that weight making your car or truck top-heavy and more difficult to handle and control, especially in emergency-type situations when you need it to handle and control properly. Don't worry about what happens when you get into an accident with a heavy, flammable battery above and below you. I mean, this could just add, I mean, tens of miles of range. So, it's worth it. Per the article, this design appears to be a portable type design that you could rent or lease when you go on a trip where you'll need all of that extra range. Now, just for fun, keep in mind that added weight and reduced aerodynamics result in a decrease in range. Also, keep in mind that an EV battery, car, not truck, truck are heavier here, but they can run in the thousand pound range or so, and there's no way you can put that type of weight on your roof, so... A roof-mounted battery would likely weigh uh, maybe 200 pounds or less. The Prius hybrid battery, which is a small battery, it's about 200 pounds, give or take, gives the Prius a battery-only range of about 40 miles. So with inefficiency losses from the connections, aerodynamic losses from this thing sitting on your roof, the fact that this pack will be pushing a much heavier car than a Prius that it's not designed to push, you'd get what? 
20, maybe 30 miles of extra range out of this thing? Ah, but according to our article, quote, this way drivers can alleviate range anxiety and won't have to worry about running out of juice before they reach the next charging station. Right, as long as they're only 25 extra miles away from that charging station, if it if it works at all. And if you put this in the bed of a lightning, right, towing that 10,000 pounds, I think you'd be hard-pressed to get an extra 10 or 15 miles of range, in my clearly non-expert opinion. But they go on to say, quote, If made a reality, these battery packs could win over drivers concerned about buying an EV. Could they? Because I feel as if they wouldn't do that. Okay, so yes, I get it. They're trying things, right? And that's what engineering is. You're trying to design or redesign in order to solve problems. But can we just admit that EVs are not ready for everyday use? At least not for everybody. I mean, if you want one, fine. If you have a short in-town commute and the ability to charge it reasonably at home or at work, fine. But these things are just not ready for use in everyday life for the bulk of society, not in America. They may be one day, but that day isn't today. And I have a hard time believing they will be ready in 10 years. There are a lot of obstacles to overcome. Huge obstacles. And if their best minds today came up with a solution to the range problem of a large portable cell phone charger in order to win people over and extend range, <laughs> ooh. as I said, these things aren't ready for prime time. So why are we doing this? Now, we've covered this before, but quickly, let's hit this again, shall we? There are different drivers as to why, depending on who you are, that you're doing this. For the manufacturers, survival is the name of the game, especially for the big three American manufacturers. It's either do as you're told or you won't get any of those sweet bailouts. So although Ford is losing billions, as are or will all of the others, they'll either be forced out of business by tightening regulations or... They can play the game and lose money and get bailed out because they're being good boys. So they choose survival. Unfortunately, that means that for them, they need to do some, uh, let's say, creative advertising. I don't know that I could call it outright lying, but they know what they're providing the consumer. They know this technology isn't good. They know these things aren't green. They know there isn't any sort of infrastructure to support these vehicles. They know all the things we've talked about and so much more. But they're in the business of selling, and sell they will, whatever they need to do. Let's call it shady at best. For the consumer, there are some that buy these for purposes of status, others that buy them as a novelty, a few buy them because they literally are the best fit for their driving lifestyle, but I'd argue that for most, they're buying them out of a fear and ignorance. They've been sold a bill of goods that this world is at the tipping point of self-destruction and it's man that's going to melt the planet down to slag. It's a godless, fear-based, sinful worldview. If you're terrified that man is destroying the planet, I think you may want to analyze that fear very closely as it's very possibly sinful. For the Christian, fear, especially unfounded fear, is sinful. If you're a Christian and you're buying this out of fear driven by ignorance— what are you doing with the brain that God blessed you with? You have the God-given ability to learn and evaluate. If you're just taking the word of, of anyone, right, left, or apolitical, without at least putting a little of your effort into it, it's being very irresponsible with your mind and your time and ultimately your money. Of course, for those that don't believe in God or a God who's in control, then you don't have a basis to not fear. You should be terrified because... You're it. You're the cause of all the problems, and you're our only hope to fix them. But that's not reality. I mean, you and I know that's not reality. So 
Although mankind is supposed to care for the planet, we are not to worship the planet. And planet worship, or idol worship, born out of fear and ignorance, is a large reason why the consumer is making this purchase decision. And for the politicians that are mandating this, I believe that there are some that fit into the category of godless, ignorant fear. But for others, and for the global elites, this is nothing but a power grab. They absolutely know that these things aren't ready. They know that the grid can't handle them. They know that they're double the price, which will bankrupt people trying to buy one of these stupid things. And look, if they have to break a few eggs or a few billion eggs, that's fine. People are expendable. Power, control, and money are not. So regarding the purchase of an electric vehicle, or really any purchase you make, or anything you do, Try your best to make sure that you're doing it from a biblical, godly worldview. Do not allow the world, fear, idolatry, or ignorance dictate any decision you make. God created us to be a light in this world, to exist in this world for the benefit of the world through our sharing of the good news and our disseminating of truth, knowledge, and wisdom in general. We are literally the arbiters of true truth, of real wisdom. Do not allow yourself to get swept up in the lies, the foolishness, and the panic of the lost world. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes, it's mandatory pandemic panic time again. As schools start back up across the nation, temperatures start to fall, windows stay closed, people stay inside, large holiday gatherings commence, the season of increased illness comes upon us when colds, flus, etc. are on the rise causing most of us to catch something that makes the throat sore or plugs up one nostril and then without explanation switches to the other nostril, generally as you're trying to fall asleep, making you breathe that extra warm air onto your upper lip, not allowing you to fall asleep, causing silent rage screaming into your pillow out of frustration. Just me? Some will sneak through the winter months without much of anything. Others will get moderately or seriously ill, and every year for... Well, as far as we're concerned, forever, there are some that will sadly die from some of these illnesses. This is just how things go in a world made imperfect by the curse of sin. But despite the fact that nearly all of us have been living normal lives over the last year, there are those that are again talking about masking up, vaxxing up, with a genetic therapy chemical solution that is in no way a vaccine, and locking down again. But let's be clear, they're only trying to keep us safe. The question is, what are they keeping us safe from? There are some who would argue that we're being kept safe from increasing the global population, from stable mental health, from social interaction, from economic prosperity. Generally stated, there are some that would say we're being kept safe from defying our government overlords, which we can all agree none of us want to be insubordinate to the global ruling elitists, right? I know that I, for one, welcome our global overlords. <laughs> I love the leader. <clears throat> Anywho, the calls came out a few weeks ago, starting as a question posed by our government media, talking heads, is it time to start wearing masks again? And in a relatively short period of time, it's subtly shifted from a question to a statement, oh, with COVID on the rise, it's time to start wearing masks again. Uh, now, here's what I'm supposed to say. In fact, what I have said, if you want to wear a mask, it's totally up to you. Just don't try to impose it on me. But can I be transparent? And no, I can't. I'm way too fat for that. So I'll just be honest instead. If you're wearing a mask, you're simply stating who you are. 
This is going to sound a little harsh, but the reality is a mask, even an N95, will not stop you from catching COVID or any virus. The homemade and store-bought cloth masks do nothing. Literally nothing against a virus. And the blue or pink or whatever surgical masks do slightly better, but still nothing against a virus. It's a simple matter of filtration, you see. Magnified, the holes in the mask are at least seven times bigger than a virus. I mean, imagine building a privacy fence on your property with holes seven times the width of you all over the wall and expecting it to keep people and animals out of your yard or in the yard. And the N95s, although able to catch a percentage of the viruses, don't actually work unless they're fit perfectly to your face. If you have facial hair, that's literally impossible. If you don't have facial hair, you wouldn't last 10 minutes with a perfectly sealed N95 because breathing through that mask is extremely difficult. If you're wearing a mask today or plan to soon, you're either just a good little follower, unthinkingly following the orders of people that don't care about you at all, or you're someone that's living in constant fear. Either way, unless you are severely immunocompromised to the point that prior to COVID, you would have had to wear a mask, you're taking an action without thinking about the action you're taking. At no time is that the best option. And I'd argue that the only time that that's acceptable is when you must make a split-second reaction to something. Bottom line, whatever you did during the fear-mongering of the original so-called pandemic, don't allow yourself to be manipulated this time, you know, into doing as you're told, because some acronymed agencies, government-controlled media outlets, or elitist politicians tell you to. Acting without thinking, without researching, is not acceptable in the world we live in today. But as I stated many moons ago when I started this podcast, I did not want to focus on COVID, and I promised that I would do very little on the totally, naturally occurring, absolutely not government-funded and created gain-of-function virus. I want to honor that promise. So although this segment will be virus-adjacent, at least for a portion, it's not about the virus as such. It is about masking, though, as we're all being told to mask up to save humanity, yet again. But as every leftist mandate, and make no mistake, this is a leftist grab for control, regardless of if it's someone on the right or the left that's doing the talking, as every leftist mandate does, it not only does nothing for the alleged problem they're claiming to address, it actually creates more problems, typically making things worse for some other cause they're allegedly trying to fight. Then masking is no different. Found on the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel via MSN.com headline, COVID rates are rising. Now a UW-Madison scientist has found a way to recycle face masks. Now, I would guess that most of us haven't thought about the disposal of masks through the height of the manufactured pandemonium. That said, I'd also guess that you saw quite a few blue, yellow, pink, white, and those classy, fancy dress, black surgical style face masks in the parking lot, in the gutter, near a dumpster, in your yard, or on the floor of a public store or restroom. If you're like me, you shook your head and chuckled because you understood the global pollution nightmare that the left was creating due to their global virus nightmare that they created. But do you have any idea of the magnitude of the quantity of disposable masks used during this time? Well, according to this article, quote, at the height of the pandemic, 3.4 billion single-use face masks were discarded daily. D daily. 3.4 billion masks were disposed of daily. 
Can you even comprehend that? I, I can't. That's nearly one mask for every two people on the planet every single day. In six months, that equates to about 615 billion masks manufactured, packaged, distributed, sold, and disposed of. Looking on Amazon, which shows right now that thousands of boxes of masks have been sold over the last month, here we go again, you can figure around maybe 25 cents per mask. So in six months of the height of the pandemic, $150 billion was spent on masks. You can see why there may be some interest in keeping this going. Imagine what could have been done with that kind of money, but it was spent on a false sense of security instead. And that doesn't count the N95s and the washable cloth masks. But where did all these masks go, exactly? Well, continuing on in the article, quote, Filling landfills, littering the streets, and polluting aquatic ecosystems. Although we think of them as being made of fabric or paper, they're actually composed of a mix of different plastics that take anywhere from 20 to 500 years to decompose. The study that this figure of 3.4 billion masks per day came from is linked in the article. It was written in February 2021 and further states that the global plastic waste per day due to face masks, face shields, gloves, medical suits, bottles for sanitizer, food packaging, primarily for takeout, you know, since we couldn't eat in a restaurant, and medical testing supplies amounted to an estimated 1.6 million tons per day of plastic waste. This is the British ton, T-O-N-N-E, which equates to about 1.76 million American tons, or 3.5 billion pounds of plastic waste per day. Now, recently, an article came out discussing the fact that New York City is slowly sinking due to the weight of the city. I mean, okay, whatever, and? But out of curiosity, I scanned the article, and the estimate for the weight of all the buildings in New York City came to 1.68 trillion pounds. This means that if we sustained the highest rate of plastic disposal due to this alleged viral pandemic, in about 16 months, we would dispose plastic stuff equal to the weight of the buildings in New York City. Now, to me, that seems like a lot. In fact, on CBSNews.com from November 2021, we got the headline, More than 57 million pounds of PPE and other COVID-related plastic waste have polluted the oceans since the pandemic began, study finds. <laughs> I mean, isn't this the opposite of what the leftists want? They got their global pandemic, they got their lockdowns, they pushed their fear-mongering, they destroyed mental health, they isolated people, uh, they destroyed businesses and the economy in general, they increased government control, but at the same time, they dramatically increased plastic, you know, made from oil, usage, dramatically increased plastic pollution, and drastically increased ocean pollution. It's almost like they have no idea what they're doing. Or more frighteningly, it's almost like they know exactly what they're doing. Well, at least the University of Wisconsin-Madison has an answer. They started this research in early 2022, when the only answer for these masks, made up of a variety of different plastics, was to drop them in a TerraCycle box, which takes generally unrecyclable products and downcycles them into lesser goods like asphalt, road cones, things like that. But a team of UW-Madison researchers has developed a process called STRAP, S-T-R-A-P, which stands for Solvent Targeted Recovery and Precipitation. <laughs> Catchy. 
Typically, plastics need to be sorted into what type of plastic they are, and that's based on the number generally molded into the container. Then they can be cleaned, sorted, shredded, melted, and formed into pellets, and reused in various percentages to make new products. You may want to go find my segment entitled Micropanics to get an idea of where I think all this microplastic pollution that we're being told is contaminating everything is coming from. But to this article, masks can't be recycled easily because despite what they look like, they're made up of a number of different plastics, all layered to create the mesh that doesn't do anything to stop a virus anyway. But don't worry, at least you're breathing a certain percentage of your oxygen deep into your lungs through plastic. That's definitely not shedding microplastics with every breath. The strap process is very simple. Just shred the masks, then repeatedly wash the shredded plastic bits with chemical solvents. After a series of these chemical washes, you dissolve away the unwanted plastics and get very clean polypropylene that can be used in most cases in place of virgin plastic. They state, quote, We have models that show the cost of strap technology can be lower than virgin plastic. Oh, a few of my favorite words right there. Model, right? So they actually don't have any proof that it can be more cost efficient. Just models that say it can be lower than virgin plastic. Hmm. Plus, they claim it'll produce 60 to 70 percent less greenhouse gas emissions. And as we all know, something, something, climate change, heat, death, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, whatever. So we definitely want less emissions of greenhouse or various other gases. As of now, this is a lab experiment that can produce about one quarter of one pound per week. But apparently a pilot plant is being built that they estimate will produce about 55 pounds of purified recycled plastic per hour at about 120 masks per pound. And I have no idea what percentage of the masks are the desirable poly. That would be processing, eh, let's just say approximately 10,000 masks per hour 240,000 per day, which is about seven thousandths of 1% of the masks that were being disposed of per day at the height of what we were led to believe was a pandemic. But if they can get this pilot plant running and prove that their models and assumptions are correct, good luck, they plan to have a larger facility running by 2027. And don't worry if we can get old President Vegetable reelected, and if they can keep him alive, or at least weekend at Bernie's Joey Hair Sniffer long enough, I have no idea that uh, COVID pandemic panic will still be pushed every year, including the Vax Up, Mask Up. <laughs> now, full disclosure, I'm not a recycler. I frankly don't care. Well, it's not that I don't care exactly, it's that I don't believe it really does what they say it does. I don't happen to believe that plastic will take five centuries to break down. I don't believe that we're saving the planet. I don't believe that recycling is all gain and no pain. Admittedly, I might be wrong. Maybe glass and paper recycling is effective, but with the process to clean, sort, recycle, process, then reuse, I just don't believe, regardless of the data, that we're saving money, saving energy, or saving the planet. Of course, I don't believe the planet is in trouble in the first place. And just recently, I saw an article that came out that basically said that all the recycling that's been done over the years, yeah, it's really kind of done nothing. So I went to find the article, and I found one similar. I don't think it was the exact one I had seen before, but this one is found on the dailycaller.com, which is admittedly a right-leaning site, although I'm not sure recycling is really a left-right battle. I don't know. Headline, most Americans think recycling can help save the planet. Most experts think that's a total myth. Now, this is actually an article 
from the end of August that's reviewing an article from the Washington Post, which is a left-leaning news site from a few days prior to their article. Now, don't worry. These so-called scientists are fully on board the global warming train, mostly because they know that that's where their money is. I mean, I mean, uh, did I say that out loud? I meant to say because they know the data clearly shows that global warming is where the money is. Ah, better. Fixed it. Now, although 60% of Americans think recycling can actually have an impact on climate change, which that says a lot about the gullibility of humans and the effectiveness of marketing and manipulation, these scientists say that it really doesn't do much. They'd rather you just stop flying so much. You know, not the uber-rich elitist climate Karens. No, they can fly all they want. Stop eating so much meat and dairy. Get rid of those gas appliances. Stop driving so fast, or better yet, get an electric car like a good little minion, and install solar panels, among other things. The funny and accurate thing is that the majority of Americans don't think these actions will do anything for so-called climate change. Of course, if you understand real science, you know that those things will do nothing for climate change, as climate change is not a man-caused thing. Now, the article states that although the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, just another three-letter acronym government agency that's heck-bent on destroying capitalism, industry, America, and humans, another agency that adds nothing productive to the planet and sucks up resources that could be used for infinity other legitimate causes, although they claim recycling is an effective way to combat greenhouse gas emissions, it turns out they're morons, I guess, which is what we kind of already knew anyway. A study conducted by the University of Leeds placed recycling as the 49th most effective way to combat climate change out of the 50 methods they evaluated. And then the Post article quotes one Kimberly Nicholas, a sustainability scientist for Lund University in Sweden, quote, 90% of the world doesn't need to reduce their emissions, but most readers of the Washington Post probably do. <laughs> See what she did there? If you're so privileged that you can read the Washington Post, why, you're the problem. That includes nearly every American and nearly everybody in the first world and most of those in the second world, because we're so evil. Now, that said, rest assured that uh, most of your recycling doesn't, doesn't actually get recycled. Now, if, after you sort it and so carefully in removing things and crushing things and sorting things and rinsing things, if it actually makes it to a recycling center, you're in the minority. About the only way you can be sure is if you take it there yourself, and even then, who knows? If you just let the garbage company pick it up, eh, there's a solid chance it's just going to the landfill. There's also a good chance that it's being sent to a third world nation to recycle, which involves them burying it in a landfill in, in their country. Then the actual recyclables, especially plastics, are so hard to process, a lot of it just jams up the machines and needs to be cut out, and, and then it's just disposed of. I'm linking an article from NPR from about three years ago with some interesting information, if you're curious. So, at the end of the day, should you recycle? Well, you, you can if you want. I mean, if you're doing it because you make a few bucks by turning it in, hey, nothing wrong with that. If you're doing it because your conviction is that you should be doing this as a steward of the planet, well, I think you're misguided, but I would not tell you to ignore your convictions. If you're doing it because your city mandates it, ugh, I'm sorry, they're wasting your time. If you're doing it because you believe you're saving the planet, or worse, that you believe you must save the planet, oh, I have bad news for you. I mean, not only will this not save the planet, at least so says climate alarmist so-called scientists, but this planet doesn't actually need saving. 
our job was never to save the planet. We're called to fill it up. We're called to subdue the earth and have dominion over all the creatures of the earth. Adam specifically was told to dress and keep the garden. The word translated subdue is the Hebrew word kavash, meaning in addition to subdue, it's to conquer, to bring into bondage or subjugation or subjection. We're to be masters over the earth. The word translated dominion is the Hebrew word radah, again, meaning to subjugate and rule and reign over. What king have you ever heard of that allowed his subjects to rule over him? We are the masters of this planet, not the other way around, as the climate cultists would have you believe. Moving to Adam and specifically the garden, the word, or more accurately the phrase translated as to dress it, is the Hebrew word abad which means to be the husbandman, to labor and do service. We were created to work the ground. And the phrase translated as to keep it is the Hebrew word shamer, which means to guard or protect. This word is used when God tells Abraham to keep his covenant, for instance, a solemn, important duty. Now, I think Christians and theologians, which every Christian is supposed to be a theologian, generally agree that we should apply the command given Adam regarding the garden to all of humanity and the earth. But as far as I can remember, and as far as I can research, after leaving the garden, man is never given the same command to dress and keep the earth. In fact, what we read over and over is that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're to have dominion over the creation, typically stated as having dominion over the animals. But God over and over is stated as being the owner and caretaker of the earth itself. I do believe that we should strive to give glory to God by treating his creation with respect. But what exactly does that mean? You know, I find it interesting that America, utilizing the resource that God gave us, oil, coal, natural gas, electricity via those natural resources, metals, etc., it allowed us to go from a little set of colonies kicking against the tyrannical British to the superpower of the world in less than a couple hundred years. I also find it interesting that using those resources not only allowed us to become prosperous, but enable us to help lift other countries out of poverty and provide food and water, electricity and sanitation, goods, services, and transportation to nations that desperately needed those things. While we used the resources in a way that glorified God, whether individuals intended it that way or not, we prospered. Now, I mean, sure, we had some river fires and choking smog, but those were corrected quickly, and as we learn more and more about toxic or radioactive substances, about land, water, and air pollution, we once again showed reverence to God by showing care for his creation by not doing those things anymore, by cleaning up our act, reducing pollution, striving to use the resources given and the knowledge obtained wisely. But now, and for, what, probably the last 50-ish years or so, We've moved from a de facto worship of God through the use of his provision to a worship of the earth through our humanist faux wisdom. And knowing some of the segments I've recorded in the past, knowing dozens of articles I've got saved for later, if later ever comes, as we turned our face from the God of creation and bowed low to the God of climate, brought our sacrifices to the altar of Mother Gaia, this country has been in a downhill slide to mediocrity at best as well as suffered an increase in strife and chaos. At a minimum, based on segments I've recorded and news articles I've saved, we can see that every, 
or to ensure accuracy, nearly every analysis we've done, nearly every change we've made, nearly every earth-worshipping measure we've put in place has either failed, been proven wrong, or backfired and created more and worse problems. Now, some of you will remember having to carry in paper grocery bags, few bags at a time because they had no handle, making trip after trip to the car as you unloaded the shopping. But those paper bags required us to cut down trees, and what we couldn't do was cut down Mother Earth's trees, even though they were a 100% perpetually renewable, biodegradable resource, so we switched to plastic. Now, a few years ago, the recycle boxes that you could jam your plastic bags into started popping up in various stores, since we now had a massive number of single-use plastic bags that were being disposed of in landfills. As we decided that plastic bags were killing ocean life and the planet in general, especially being made out of evil oil, everyone was told that they should switch to reusable fabric shopping bags. But then we found out that those bags were making people very ill, or in some cases, leading to the deaths of some people, because inadequately washed bags between shopping trips meant that spoiled, rotten, bacteria-infested food juices were getting on the new foods and packaging and transferring it to us. So just stay with the plastic bags, for now. Or as I've seen most recently, maybe we should use paper bags. Has anyone ever thought of that? I don't know. Never heard of that. Coal used to power our nation. And then that was too dirty, so we threw all those coal miners out on their ear and decided that natural gas was the way to go. We tried nuclear, but never really pursued it with any national fervor because, <laughs> ooh, scary. It's practically a death sentence. But now, as we become more enlightened, we know that natural gas and coal are both dirty and evil. They anger the climate gods, and solar and wind are the way of the future. Now, we already have water power, but the PETA-type people don't like that as it harms fishies. Further... Hydroelectric dams are bad because they block the river from flowing naturally, which isn't good for the spirit of the river. Who are we to dictate where and how a river runs? And now, following our most enlightened thinkers and leaders, we have video after video of birds being slammed to the ground as the tips of the windmill blades crash into them, and the first video of a bird being cooked mid-flight as superheated sun rays reflected from the solar panels zapped him and left a bird dead or dying, smoking, crashing to the ground. And now, as windmill blades are reaching end of life, as they can only be used for so long, and as solar panels are reaching their end of their useful life, all of those need to be disposed of. They simply don't last forever. And they're not made of natural materials. They're all man-made, non-biodegradable plastics, rubbers, metals, etc. They can't all be recycled, or at least recycled easily. And they throw in electric vehicle batteries as well, and we have no plan on how to deal with this kind of mass refuse. They're all either being stacked up, stockpiled for some recycling revelation that we're hoping comes in the future, or they're being landfilled. We have no idea what kind of damage to the planet all of this renewable energy, non-renewable plastics, etc. will do. We've decided that electric everything is better for the planet. It won't make it cry as much. So we're willing to sacrifice humanity to make that happen. Heating, cooling, driving, cooking, everything will at the very best be massively more expensive, forcing families to make choices or run to the government for help. And that's if the grid can handle the load without melting into rivers of copper, which it can't. We're told to not eat so much meat. So we're given plant-based meats, and we find out that those are definitely not better for you. The nutrients don't compare to real meat, the taste is worse, and the additives and preservatives and various chemicals make this fake meat horribly unhealthy. God gave us cows and allowed us to eat them. Let's just do that. 
every way we turn, every way we've been mandated to turn is worse than the last because everything we're being forced into, or that we're doing willingly, is moving farther and farther away from being thankful to God for his provision and closer and closer to worshiping the God of this world. As Romans 1, paraphrase, says, we're worshiping and serving the almighty creation rather than the creator. Now, I'm not an advocate of pining for or forcing a return to the good old days. I don't think that we're called to live in the past, insisting that everything used to be better, that everything today is worse or bad or evil. But I do believe in simple data analysis. If things aren't working correctly at this point, and we're pretty sure that although more primitive, they worked better before, we should at least evaluate what was and what is and what changed. An honest analysis would result in relatively simple answers. How to address those answers would be the hard part to be sure, especially as far down this road as we are right now. I'm also not advocating for returning to days of overt pollution, inefficiency, the removal of wind, solar, or battery power. Remember when politicians used to use the phrase, all of the above? It used to be that they would at least claim to want to use the best combination of resources, technology, and wisdom possible to care for man, to advance humanity and care for the planet. That, again, brings God glory, as the resources, the knowledge, and the wisdom are all gifts granted to us by God, and using them to care for his creation, the planet, and the inhabitants glorifies God, whether man intends to do so or not. And maybe that's why we, humanity, are moving away from that model as quickly as possible and toward a model that, on its surface, glorifies man's wisdom, and in reality, harms man and harms the planet, and blasphemes God through the misuse of his gifts claiming to be the most wise, while ignoring all facts, data, and evidence. Unfortunately, you and I individually are mostly along for the ride in matters like this. We really only have a couple courses of action that we can take. The first is the most powerful, of course, prayer. We should be earnestly praying for God's mercy on humanity by the removal from power those who blaspheme God by misusing his blessings while claiming Godlike status. But God is sovereign. He's king of kings, and not one ruler is in place that wasn't foreordained from before creation, for a purpose, ultimately for God's glory. That said, prayer is how God allows and expects us to be involved in his sovereign plan. We should not neglect that privilege and that duty. The other thing we can do is be active with regard to these people. We can vote, we can inform, we can advocate, and more to place those in office that intentionally or unintentionally glorify God through their actions and policies. All that said, as frustrating, as damaging, as dangerous as our current trajectory seems to be, there's no reason to despair. There's no reason to fear. God is sovereign. Nothing will ever change that. God's plan will never be thwarted and man will never remove God from his throne. The God of this creation, our God, for those of us who are saved, is not trying to figure out what move to make on the chessboard to try to counter the climate alarmists. He's not worried that humanity will destroy itself. He's not concerned that a virus will overtake us all. He's not worried about the condition of the planet, the number of cars on the road, the abundance or lack of energy, the status of our recycling programs, or the number of masks floating in the ocean. This has all been known by God since eternity past and ordained by God for his glory. While God is God, we have nothing to fear. And until further notice, God is God. If that changes, I'll let you know. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. 
Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. The kid shouted down the stairs a few days ago, Hey Padre, because that's what she calls me. I'm assuming out of affection, not mockingly. I know, I just, look, let me have this one. Hey Padre, she says, guess what? My answer was shockingly, what? She said, there are only 99 days left until Christmas. <laughs> oh, you're welcome for that. Hey, welcome back to my goal updates. We're currently in week number 38 for 2023, and this is goal update number 30. Eh, not too shabby, I guess. Well, that's probably enough stalling for now. Let's go ahead and get at it. All right, as we always do, let's take a look at my mass. Good news, as of the last weigh-in, I only weigh 174.5 pounds if I were on Uranus. But if I were on Uranus, well, there'd probably be some other things we need to talk about here. Just going to pause for a second, let you ponder Uranus. That's probably enough time. So since I'm not standing on Uranus, but rather on Earth, my weight was 197 pounds on my last weigh-in. No, I'm not happy about regaining weight. Yes, I enjoyed nearly every delicious calorie. No, this isn't anything shocking or abnormal for me. Yes, I know that yo-yo weight and dieting isn't the best thing for things like health or longevity. But here we are, starting over again. So, as I said in the last update, my goal is to be 175 pounds by the end of the year. In order to keep track of how I'm doing, I've set up my tracking spreadsheet to calculate the average number of pounds I'd need to lose each week based on my current weight, goal weight, and the number of weeks remaining. Last week, I took a guess of about 200 pounds as a starting weight, which meant I'd have to lose 1.6 pounds per week to hit my goal. With my actual weight last Tuesday, the average dropped to 1.5 pounds per week. That's a very reasonable weekly weight loss goal. So now it's just a matter of finding the time and energy to do the working out and the willpower to manage the calories. Piece of cake. Hmm, cake. So for right now, I've put this as a light green because at least I'm starting to track things. Getting back on the old, battered, dry-rotted, structurally unsound wagon. Moving to pages read. A better week last week than I've had in a while. I got 93 pages read and finished my current book, The Great Love of God by Heath Lambert. This brings my total pages to 4,991 and 22 books read so far in 2023. Only 389 pages to uh, get to my 2019 goal or total read, I guess, whatever it is there. Incidentally, when and or if I finish my now current book, it'll put me over the top of 2019, but this is a slower read because it's a bigger book, so it's bigger pages, and it's fairly deep material. As for The Great Love of God, I definitely recommend the book. Now, I've often joked in the past that as a highly logical engineer type, my emotions are massively underdeveloped. This has pros and cons, but when it comes to the concept of love, there are challenges. Personally, I do not like how so much of the evangelical world has fallen into the trap of preaching love, ignoring sin and repentance, etc., etc. This is where we get stupid statements like, don't judge me, or out-of-context use of the phrase, judge not, lest ye be judged. This is where we get the seeker-sensitive gospel light, 
or gospel-absent, feel-good churches that are all too prevalent these days, giving, you know, just a light, uplifting TED Talk type of message, rather than a biblical sermon that actually means something. So I'm already on edge when people talk about loving God or the love of God. I'm not saying that I'm not overreacting the other direction, I'm just telling you where I'm at. Then, when you add in the complexity, based on how my mind functions of loving or being loved by a God who I absolutely believe is real, of which I absolutely believe the gospel and the Bible as a whole for that matter, but I can't physically see or talk to or touch, etc., etc., the concept of loving or being loved by this invisible God is challenging, let's say, for my mind to, uh, to wrap around. Well, as it stands today, I don't see me ever falling into a puddle of tears and an emotional outburst based on loving or the love of God, not on this side of humanity. Now, I know some people think that if you're not overtaken by emotion, then you haven't had the necessary experience of salvation. I reject that notion. That said, I absolutely want to understand and know and feel that love and reciprocate that love to the best of my emotionally stunted ability. So upon recommendation of one Todd Friel from Wretched Radio, I purchased and read this book. It was definitely worth it. This book carefully outlines how God loves us, but is careful not to step into the mind-riddled field of sappy emotionalism. In fact, the author multiple times addresses the misuse of this love concept throughout the book, which I appreciate. Let me give you a few quotes that I found to be really good in here. Quote, As one of his children, God freely sets his affection on you so that you are his precious possession. God honors and treasures you. He is for you. God has compassion on you. God rejoices over you. He delights in you. God is filled with longing for you and pursues a closeness of relationship with you that he will never cut off, even though you sin. Of course, the context of this quote is that this is speaking of his children, those that are saved, but I appreciate the statement as correct and the grounding of that final sentence fragment, even though you sin. Next quote, quote, sometimes God is protecting you the most when you are able to see it the least. Yeah, now I I think most Christians have made some sort of comment like this, but the reality exists that we complain when things don't go well, and when tragedy strikes, we ask God why, which there's nothing wrong with doing that if done correctly, but I think I speak for most of us when I say that we generally don't give any thought when things are going well or badly about what God is actually protecting us from at any of those moments. We probably need to do that. Next quote, quote, the greatest threat to your life, happiness, and eternal joy is that deep down in your heart, you love things God hates and hate things God loves. You are a sinner, and that reality has devastating consequences. No real comment needed there. I'll just borrow from Vody Bauckham on that one. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. And the last one, quote, There is only one way to know whether we love and trust God or the gifts God gives. That one way is for God to take some of his gifts away. When he takes away his gifts and we curse him, we know it was never him that we loved. But when God takes away his good gifts and we still love him, we know our faith is genuine and that we have life with him forever. Now tell me that one doesn't hit home and make you uh, think just a little bit there. 
Anyway, this is going on longer than planned, and I've got more to cover here. So overall, I'd recommend this book. Whether you're like me with an underdeveloped sense of empathy and sympathy, or you turn into a puddle of snot and tears every time the church doors open, this book will give you a grounding in what the love of God truly is. All right, let's get through the rest of this thing as quickly as we can. Devotion's still green, nothing changed here. We're still working through Exodus and Laws, moving a bit faster through this section, but still expanding what the laws meant then and what we can take from it now. All right, finally, Bible reading. Well, I didn't do any of the in-depth study of Genesis over the last week. This is all just a matter of time. But I did finish up Job and moved back into Genesis to pick up with Abram. Uh, I did this for four days with my goal of five, so not where I want to be. That keeps me at 80% of my goal, same as last week, so I'm making this a light green for right now. So, what struck me while I read, or what questions did I think of that you might find interesting? Uh, first, just something to think of. As we get toward the end of Job, not at the end, but toward the end, when God comes onto the scene, he comes in the midst of a storm, and the first words he says to Job is, quote, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. How terrifying must that have been? I mean, can you even imagine being in a situation like that? I think my insides would instantly liquefy. For Job to even respond after a little while is impressive, in my opinion. Next, at the end of Job, notice that God speaks to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, telling them that they spoke wrongly and told them to repent and get Job to pray for them. Job was chastised for questioning God, but he was not told to repent by God, and neither was Elihu, the youngest friend that sat there quietly until the end, and then he just unloaded on Job. Elihu also wasn't told to repent and get Job to pray for him. My inference from that would be that Elihu and Job were not in the wrong by what they said, necessarily. They might have been misguided or maybe weak in an aspect of faith, but what they said was apparently not sinful like the others. The next thing, the very last verse of Job, after Job was healed, he was blessed again. In fact, he was doubly blessed. The very last verse says, quote, Then Job died, an old man and full of days. Just let that kind of sink in. What a simple statement with so much peace and faith and blessing baked into it. All right, moving back to Genesis. When we flipped chronologically to Job, we left after Genesis 11. At that point, Terah had fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran had fathered Lot, but then he died. Abram and Nahor took wives. Then Terah moved Abram, Nahor, and the families, and Lot from Ur to the land of Haran. He was bound for Canaan, but stopped short, and then he settled. Then Terah died. So now we get back from Job into Genesis 12. God calls Abram to leave Haran to go where he leads him. Then in chapter 15, God cuts a covenant with Abram and says, quote, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So I bring this up to say this, Terah moved them, including Abram, from Ur to Haran, apparently of his own free will, but God is sovereign. Regardless of what Terah did, God was in control. See, Terah moved Abram out of Ur because that's what God determined he would do. This is an example of Terah exercising his free will by moving them. Abram, an adult with a wife, exercising his free will by going with his father. But God sovereignly dictating what was going to happen through all of this. 
And then finally, in chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, found this interesting, Sarai had given Hagar, her servant, to Abram to birth a child, but then Hagar held it over her head with an air of supremacy. So Sarai turns to Abram and blames him for following her instructions. And she's right. Abram, being the man, was supposed to be the head of the family. He should have never followed the directions of his wife in this instance. But then Abram passed the buck right back to Sarai to do what she wanted with Hagar. There's a parallel here with the story of Adam and Eve. Eve took the fruit, doing what she shouldn't have done. She gave it to Adam to eat, which he should have taken control and stopped that process right there. But instead, he listened to his wife and did what she said. Then, when confronted by God, Adam passed the buck back to Eve because the woman you gave me. I'm sensing a pattern here. I just thought that was kind of an interesting parallel. All right, this went on a whole lot longer than I intended. My apologies. So I guess I'll just kind of wrap it up here. Okay, bye.